Hey everybody, it's Love It here. We have something a little special for you today, an episode of Inside 2024. This is our new show for members of the Friends of the Pod community, where we're joined by campaign and political experts from the Crooked family to tell behind-the-scenes stories of high highs and low lows and weird weirds that happen on campaigns and in politics. In this episode, our intrepid producer, Caroline Reston, who's here in this recording, looming over us like the Babadook, <laughs> joins me and my guests straight from the cuck zone, Tim Miller, to unpack our tear-stained, scotch-soaked memories of primary defeats past, like the one I witnessed when I worked for Hillary, and the several Tim experienced, including when he worked for Jeb! Exclamation point Bush. Find out what liquor got Jeb cracking wise, and how to spot a secret gay or simply pro-gay Republican by just how much their heart isn't in it. Take a listen, enjoy the conversation, and above all, please clap. And subscribe to Friends of the Pod to hear this show and so much more at crooked.com slash friends. We're having a good time over there. Yeah. In the uh, the uh, Friends of the Pod community. your first time inside Tim Miller 2024? All right. I think we all know where that was going. Third place is a ticket to ride, ladies and gentlemen. I have just called President Obama to congratulate him on his victory. If we can blast 50 women into space, we will someday launch a woman into the White House. Welcome to Inside 2024. Every month, this show will take you behind the scenes of what it's like to work on a campaign and share stories from the people who've lived it. I'm John Lovett. <laughs> I was a speechwriter for President Barack Obama and a speechwriter for then-Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton. And joining us, he was communications director for Jeb Bush's presidential campaign in 2016. He's a writer and podcast host for The Bulwark, Tim Miller. Good to see you. I've never been more prepared for a podcast than this one, John. Love it. <laughs> I am just <laughs> your whole life needs very up to this. well suited to the topic of the day. And as always, moderating discussion is Cookerd Media's favorite producer. <laughs> what favorite? Caroline Stop. Reston. Stop. All right. Take I it didn't away. Take, that. What are we here for? What we're doing today is talking about what it's like to be a big old loser. <laughs> Mm -hmm. and campaign primaries. So, so happy we were able to gather our two favorite losers of the Crooked Media or universe. Or consider it a podcast about making lemonade. Yeah, look where you guys are both now. Producing pods. Oh. Or hosting pods. Yeah. Even a step up. Yeah, oh, um, I mean, we're just pod... That's what everyone aspires to be, you know? <laughs> a podcaster. It's yeah. Just when I was sitting in my bed, in my high school bed, dreaming about what I was going to be when I grew up, I was thinking, <laughs> man, I'd like to be an infrequent guest on John Lovett's podcast. <laughs> I, look, I, the way that I think about it is, I don't think we've gone from uh, the heights of politics to podcast hosts. I think that we do the job that, that Prince Harry, Barack Obama, and Bruce Springsteen aspire to. I have and, like, all I failed. Think that's, yeah. <laughs> You know, that's a great point. Love it. That is a Man, great point. I love I love your spin so far today. I'm let's just, keep just this, let's keep this up as we go through all my losing campaigns. Yeah. Let's yeah so I actually just want to first like let listeners know what were the campaigns that each of you have worked on where mm. you did lose. Tim, do you want to go first? How long you got? Yeah, your list is a little bit longer. Let's start with you. Uh, well, in 2005, I worked on Jerry Kilgore's gubernatorial <laughs> campaign. I don't, I don't know if we're going all the way that deep, but uh, we'll keep it at the presidential level. Uh, in 08, I worked for John McCain. I was his Iowa spokesperson. You might know uh, Barack Obama's Iowa spokesperson at that time. He was a guy named Thomas uh, Vitor. Uh, so I, uh, he won in that one. And then 2012, I was on John Huntsman's primary campaign. We finished in last place. And then <laughs> I begged my way onto Mitt Romney's losing general election campaign. Technically, I worked at the RNC. 
And then in 2016, I worked for Jeb Bush. Um, that didn't go so well. And then after that, I joined on to a super PAC aimed at stopping Trump from winning the presidency. And I don't really remember how that worked out. Well, you, you made a lot of great content. Yeah. I did. I did. Love it. You're famously on one campaign that lost. Yeah. It Pretty was big on one, the, I worked for, so I was a speechwriter in Hillary Clinton's Senate office. Uh, from there went to, sort of helped on her winning 2006 Senate campaign uh, against a person. Yeah, who did you even run against? It was supposed to be Rudy Giuliani, actually, and then it ended up being Rick Lazio. Rick Lazio. And then I worked on Hillary Clinton's 2008 primary campaign against Barack Obama. Actually, we both worked on campaigns that lost to Barack Obama, in a sense. That's something Mm. that we have in common. Uh, And after Hillary Clinton lost in 2008, I went back... uh, to working in the Senate office full-time and ultimately was hired by John Favreau to be a speechwriter in the White House for President Obama. So for me, I got the same job that I would have gotten either way, you know? So <laughs> that was a cool twist for me. So you weren't the lead speechwriter. Uh, is that the, the correct terminology? I wasn't chief speechwriter, no. You weren't chief. What, so what does it mean when you're... Uh, a speechwriter below the chief and like how is is speechwriting different on a on a what are you laughing at <laughs> what does it mean to be like the low to mid man low, yeah. low hey, to mid manager hey. i'm trying to get, have department. a through a through line here of i would so we you know the the candidate is, has you know tons of events and you're working on a bunch of different speeches at all, all the time and so i ended up doing either comedy speeches or policy speeches nobody cared about that was sort of my favorite thing to end up doing so the, what were the, your favorite hillary comedy speeches well she didn't do as many of those she didn't do the <laughs> correspondence dinners she actually hated those famously anyway i also worked on policy speeches uh, i remember one time i did on the campaign she went to iowa and bill clinton was very at the time focused on energy policy i'm sure he still is and so i remember sort of doing a draft of a speech for her to give on climate and energy in iowa and then getting sort of late night edits from Bill Clinton from wherever. How is he sending you the Epstein's edits? Plane. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I saw your face working on that. The uh, but uh, he would basically do notes. He has a beautiful but incomprehensible penmanship. Just this beautiful <laughs> squiggle. Uh, and then he, one of his advanced people, one of his people that was always on the roads with him, um, you know, making sure that the island had. Sprites or whatever, uh, was, <laughs> would uh, call and kind of help be a Rosetta Stone for his incomprehensible mm-hmm. notes. Uh, and uh, yeah. I feel like Boomers Plus are the last generation of good handwriting. So my last question on like the time on the Hillary campaign is, I feel like famously Hillary has had a harder time landing a joke. You may have seen that I recently launched a Snapchat account. I love it. I love it. Those messages disappear all by themselves. What's it like to speechwrite for someone who very publicly has that kind of reputation? I think most, I think Barack Obama was exceptionally good at telling jokes. Uh, He just had a natural rhythm that made him very good at events like the Correspondence Center. Hillary Clinton is more, I think, in the standard deviation of a typical politician in that they're not 
inherently very good at doing stand up. They just they're it's just tougher. Yeah. She get them all into a UCB 101 class. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, Tim, how was uh Jeb with uh comedic material? Jeb was bad at jokes. Jeb was really funny after a couple scotches, you know, at the uh in the hotel lobby, but uh not a not a natural joke teller. I did do a little because we ran out of money. Um, I did end up doing a little speech writing for Jeb at the end, and I and I had our election night losing speeches. Uh, so, do we have that in common on this losers podcast? Did you do Hillary's? New I Hampshire, did a couple. Or I guess she won New Hampshire, like South Carolina losing speech. I did something. a couple. I don't honestly. It really is hard to remember now because there were so many primary losing nights. Speeches. There were so yeah, many right. losing speeches. I had but, so many more losing campaigns, but you had each yeah, one right. of those I think primary that, right, nights we, add up. You have to right. you that's, such a, time. that's such an important point. We packed in a year more losing than you did in a decade. The thing that we figured out, I remember as the 2008 primaries were unfolding, you could basically guess what was going to happen because what would happen is the results would be bad enough to not change the dynamic, but good enough to justify staying in the race. (laughs) That there was like a, basically... You couldn't hope Sweet for spot. results good enough so that suddenly there's a chance that this the fucking thing is going to turn around, but never could you get a result so dispositive that we could all go home. So we just, that's why we ended up in this thing till June. We ended up in, we ended up in this primary till June, but it was a lot of training doing kind of, it, I think in the end, because the race was so static, we kind of. You know, Al Gore has that joke, you know, there's wins and there's losses, and then there's that third category. I feel like we did a ton of third category speeches. <laughs> a lot of speeches right. were like, you know, uh, America's ready for change and it, and strength plus experience equals change and the fight goes on. Uh, yes. Yes. Thank you, Michigan. And thank yes. you a little less, Nebraska. <laughs> yes. Depending on the de- demographics of the next few contests, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Tim, so you were the, the comms director for Jeb. Yeah. But once he was, you know, losing and everyone wasn't working, you were saying that you wrote the speech. We do have a clip of the speech, and there is one line I specifically want you to answer to. Finally, I am so grateful to Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina here for his steadfast support. (laughs) And, And his amazing humor. Uh, Amazing humor, Lindsey Graham. Did you write that line? Yes, I did. And I did not have to, I, you can tell I wrote it because he read it for some reason. That's kind of, <laughs> usually the thank yous you can just riff on, but you know, each every candidate has their strengths, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Jeb was an on-script kind of man. Um, uh, Lindsey is hilarious. I think that at his core, he is a kind of funny wingman. You know, yeah. and he needed, needs a daddy and he needs a front man and he's the sort of funny side character. And when the front man is John McCain, like that, you know, that's not, it's kind of minimal damage except maybe some of the bombings. Um, yeah. And when the front man is Donald Trump, like it, it go, you go to a very dark place, I think. That's that's probably the best coherent Lindsey Graham theory I've got. Yeah, I think that's right. So before we get into like really the bigger flops of uh, different candidates in Jeb's 2016 primary run and in 
Hillary's 2008 run. Both were campaigns that felt like had a lot of promise and were likely going to be the nominees, at least early on. So when Mm -hmm. you joined those campaigns, like, what was your attitude going in? Were you, like, excited? Were you feeling confident? Were you like, holy shit, this might go all the way? Like, where were you before things started heading in a different direction? Yeah, sure. I really really liked Jeb. And so I, I was feeling excited to work for him. And and I thought we had a chance for about a week. <laughs> like we had a really good a first really good day week. of the campaign. Like our first day was really strong. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, I I knew probably by the fall um, that that things were, had gone. We're going a different direction. Oh, pretty early on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember where I was when I knew. Where were you? Uh, I was I was my brother's bachelor party. I took two days off the campaign. I was really hungover, and um, and we had a a, pri- a private poll coming, and I had asked the pollster to put one question on on for me, which was, "What do you like least about Jeb <laughs> Jeb Bush?" <laughs> and um, and I, I I'd saved it. I didn't want to ruin the bachelor party weekend, so I had an open poll, and I looked at it, and we were like, "Trump's killing us, Marco's killing us," and then I scrolled all the way down to my question, which was the last one, and it was like. Forty-five percent didn't like him because he was a Bush. You know, forty-eight percent didn't like him because he was low energy. And then it was like four other like random things, and I was like, "Oh, so they don't like his name or his personality?" (laughs) Yeah, we're in a distant third. I don't think there's going to be a path back from that. When did please clap happen? At what point in the campaign? Very end. Very Very, end. Very end. And that's all Ashley Parker's fault. But that happened at the very end. I think the next president needs to be a lot quieter, but send a signal that we're prepared to act in the national security interests of this country to get back in the business of creating a more peaceful world. Please clap. Yeah, there's also, I think, a habit of, um, like, please clap or the Dean scream were not causes. They They were moments, basically, you know, if you're in a bad mood and it's raining out, you blame the rain. If you're in a bad mood and it's sunning out, you look for another explanation. And I right. do think that, like, camp- when campaigns are at a kind of downward slope, when things like that happen, they get, they get, they get sort of outsized attention because they are fulfilling the narrative. Yeah, people are looking for things to sum up Jeb being sad. Like, Jeb's sad. Our, <laughs> our numbers are going down, right? Like, it was self-deprecating, right? In yeah. a room where we had just won New Hampshire, and and he kind of gets interrupted, and he's like, go ahead, please clap. Like, nobody remembers that. Like, people, you know what I mean? But it was, it was like, because we were sad, people were looking for a, a meme, a gif. Yeah, to, to I never took it as, like, a like a... Like a please clap. I always thought like he understood. Like just come on, work with me here, guys. It was charming. Like, it was yeah. charming. The the so Tim, here's a question that I wanted to ask you about this, which is, okay. So obviously in 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 2016, year there was a kind of like I think a a wider range of ideological outcomes. Let's say right, Jeb becomes the kind of for a time the main alternate. So the main, the main sort of place you could go if you didn't want to go to Trump. In 2012, it's a narrower ideological band, right? Like what you and Sarah Longwell, you have, you have a podcast with Sarah on the Bulwark. And I thought that was a, you, you, you two had like an interesting discussion the other day about what it was like being gay people in the Republican Party, listening for yeah. clues, listening for people who, whose heart really wasn't in it. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it factored into how you ended up with John Huntsman in 2012? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, so in 08, I worked for McCain. He loses. Um, and then I like took a break from being an active politics, came out of the closet and like, you know, focused on myself for a little while, did a little self-care as I, as I say. It's, it's, and, um, I didn't realize it was that late that you're coming out of the closet. It was late. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was during McCain really. So anyway, I was kind of happy. I was at a PR firm and I was attracted to Huntsman's campaign because he was a Tim Miller, right? He was moderate. He's center left. At the time, he's for civil He basically has the Obama 08 position in the mm-hmm. Republican Party four years later. Like, I'm for civil unions, and I and you know, I think gay people have dignity and all that. So he was taking the the most progressive view among the among the candidates in that ideological band within the Republican Party. Um, and so to me, 2012 was like, I'm getting back in this for like the most earnest reasons possible. Like, like I kind of know this is going to be a loser probably. Let's take the shot. Let's work for somebody that like is really aligned with me politically. Um, you know, because he's probably going to be a loser, I got to be the national spokesman. Like, that's not a job I would have gotten for a, a candidate that was more likely to win because um, I was young. And so, like, to me, that was re-enter- re- I re-entered it for Huntsman and then – you know, after that, I, I kind of got a little bit more career rest about things. Just to go back, when I went into politics, it was really very kind of cavalier. I like had been doing like math when I was in college. I was thinking about maybe being a lawyer. I was so unexamined and so um, anxious and insecure and unprepared for these responsibilities that like the idea that I was like, thinking about like, oh, Barack Obama versus Hillary Clinton. I was just hanging on for dear life. Like this is where I was. I worked. It wasn't like I thought to myself, ah, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, I'm going to choose the one that'll be a better president. And that's the one I'm going to work for. It's like, this is just where my desk was. And I, <laughs> I believed in her campaign. And I, and my, my, like the way in which, you know, Tim was talking about, like, you kind of find the justification, not the justification, but you kind of find the emotional reason you're investing so much time. You kind of do some cognitive dissonance. Like if I'm working this hard, it must be for a reason. What is the reason? Here are the reasons. But, and I'd had those reasons. And for me, a lot of it was rooted in the fact that that was a very rhetorical primary. Their differences on policy were very, very minor. Obviously there was a big disagreement on Iraq. That was the core of it. But by the time they're running, their position isn't actually very different. His view is, I, the same. His view is I, sh- I wouldn't have voted yes on the authorization. She had voted yes on the authorization and then came to view it as a mistake. That's sort of like the core kind of uh, 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 difference in their sort of approach to politics. And from that, a bunch of other things happen. But so much of that campaign was Hillary Clinton and like the consultants around her trying to make an argument that in an electorate that desperately wants change, experience is the thing that makes change possible. While Barack Obama is saying, if you want change, I'm change. And that was simpler and worked much better. Did you develop any animosity for him? There was some sour grapes because I remember, I, I remember like, I think my frustration was actually not with him. It was with the coverage it was a very frustrating campaign to be a part of because you're like, wait a second, like he is an inspirational figure promising generational change. She is an establishment figure that represents the status quo, but her healthcare policy is to the left of his, her energy policy is to the left of his. Why am I the only person who understands that? And so I think the only time it became a kind of, I think like frustration with the Obama campaign or with Barack Obama 
it was like when that was the message, it felt insulting to us inside the campaign because like it was really like it was an unusual arrangement. Speech writing in the 2008 Hillary Clinton campaign ran out of policy. And here's something that you don't always hear enough of from Democrats. A big part of our plan will be unleashing the power of the private sector to create more jobs at higher pay. She really viewed speeches, to her detriment ultimately, as a means of conveying policy chops, history, and and proposals. And obviously, I think Barack Obama put a lot more poetry on top of that prose and basically made the argument that, like, inspiration is what you need and inspiration is what I offer. People of every creed and color from every walk of life is that in America, our destiny is inextricably linked. That together, our dreams can be one. We cannot walk alone, the preacher cried. So I think that, like, the, like, how can he be the one offering change if she's on the left? Like, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. Of course, there was so little difference. It was, an, it was we were dancing on the end of the so you're pen. Losing, you're losing bitterness was, fo- was more focused on the fake news media than on Barack yeah. Obama. Yes, especially because, I, yeah. like, I was in the convention in 2004 when he spoke. I, I went, media. I was at the Boston convention in 2004 and I saw that speech. Um, right. I was, uh, I was a, <laughs> a like volunteer boom mic person for a documentary of <laughs> a bunch of left-wing like gadflies who were running around the convention calling Madeleine Albright a war criminal. <laughs> and I'm just like chasing <laughs> Madeleine Albright was, I remember Madeleine Albright was sitting on a golf cart, you know, the seats on the golf cart that face the face, the, the back yeah, backward. Sure. And I just remember yeah. I'm like, there's somebody chasing Madeline Albright with a with a camera, and I'm chasing behind them as the golf cart pulls away, <laughs> so that she didn't have to answer questions. I don't even remember what they were. What they were? It was a. It was a. I don't know what during the Clinton administration they were focused on at that time. Uh, so I was on the floor during that speech, and so I like would. Oh, I remember like you know, there's a kind of like team mentality. So you're, it's sort of, but it's like in quieter moments. I remember being on the Hillary campaign. You'd be like, you know, walking to your car with somebody and just talking about it and just be like, Jesus, Obama's good. <laughs> like, oh, fuck. This is, this is not good. I'm in the McCain office and I'm watching it on streaming, the Obama speech. I just walked out to the rest of the people and I was like, we are fucked. <laughs> it's not, it does not matter if we win this primary. I was like, we are fucked. I remember saying like, I don't know. Uh, what's it like to lose to Kennedy? <laughs> you know, it's like that. Is that what this feels like? Because I think this might be what it feels like. Okay, so Tim was saying earlier that on Jeb's campaign, there was like a clear moment where he was like, "Oh fuck, we're gonna lose this." When did that happen on Hillary's campaign to Obama? Because I know you were saying like we, there kept being hope during the primary race, but not really enough to sustain. Was there one thing that happened where you were like, "It's over"? Thanks for listening. To hear the rest of this episode, plus a ton of other great exclusive content, consider joining the Friends of the Pod community, the tier to get even further inside <laughs> we haven't released yet. Head to crooked.com slash friends to learn more.